the level of stringency that is expected is alienating the average Jew to a point that uh, I don't think, you know, there was such a level of alienation experienced previously in which if this is the base standard for what, what I am required to do as a, as a Jewish person in order to be able to be recognized as orthodox from what have you, whatever just you want to call a person, people are saying, you know, I just can't manage or it's just too, or it's just too much. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In several recent episodes of this podcast, I've discussed issues related to what we've been calling Ehrlichkeit as opposed to Frumkeit. That is the fact that ethics and honesty seem to often be ignored at the expense of increased stringency in ritual. To continue that discussion, I was honored to speak with Rabbi Joseph Dweck, the senior rabbi of the S&P Sephardi community of the United Kingdom. In this interview, we talked about the move towards stringency and its consequences, whether there's a de-emphasis on studying ethics, how we should interact with the non-Orthodox Jewish community without compromising halachic standards, the proper response to what occurred in Meron, and more. Before we begin, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, I hope five, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. Last week, for example, we released a patrons-only podcast about the connection between Lagba Omer and Pesach Sheni, with some Kabbalistic ideas thrown in for good measure. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffee House. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or, alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Rabbi Joseph Dweck is the senior rabbi of the S&P Svaradi community of the United Kingdom. Rabbi Dweck is American-born and has lived in Los Angeles and Brooklyn. He studied in Yerushalayim at Yeshiva Chazor Ovadia under the tutelage of former Sephardi chief rabbi, Harav Ovadia Yosef Tzatzal. Rabbi Dweck served as rabbi of congregation Sharei Shalom in Brooklyn from 1999 to 2014 and also served as headmaster of Barkai Yeshiva, a large Jewish day school in Brooklyn from 2010 to 2014. He also received training as a chazan in the Oriental Sephardi tradition. In his capacity as senior rabbi, Rabbi Dweck is the deputy president of the LSJS, 
a president of the Council of Christians and Jews, and ecclesiastical authority of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Rabbi Dweck also serves as a member of the Standing Committee of the Conference of European Rabbis. Rabbi Joseph Dweck, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. An honor and pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Before we get to our main topic today, I can't really move forward without talking about an issue which I think is on everybody's mind in the Jewish world right now. We're recording this only a few days after Lagba Omer and the terrible tragedy that happened in Meron. The podcast I recorded most recently talked about that, but I wanted to ask you, Rabbi Dweck, about these tragic events. The first thing I want to ask is a more general question. If it's right to cast blame, to point fingers at those who let it happen, one thing which has been coming up has been the question of accountability. And I'm not asking you to say who's accountable, but the idea of, yes, someone should take responsibility versus, no, we have to be unified, move together, and accountability can wait for another time. What's your feeling about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, one, it's one or the other necessarily. I think it's probably both and uh, recognizing that, you know, our urge to cast blame is a primal survival urge because it deflects anything that we have to own or kind of uh, bear. And it's there's no question about the fact that this tragedy is, it's staggering. Uh, it's staggering. I mean, I, I will say, that one of my rabbis, Rabbi Shalom Morris, who's the rabbi of Bebis Mark Synagogue, his nephew was Donnie Morris. Uh, so it's very From close Tinek. to home. Yeah, it's very close to home. Uh, and there are several other people who wrote to me, you know, people that I'm friendly with or people that work with me who, who said to me, my, my grandson was waiting for a bus for hours to get there and didn't make it there. The, you know, my, my, my grandson was thinking to go. I told him, don't go. It's a, a massive tragedy. And even those words don't really reach what it is, I think, that all of us feel. And so we're reeling. And part of that, I think, causes a tendency to want to point fingers, to want to say they should have, could have, would have. I would say that it is it is probably not wise to lean into that. It would probably be better to lean away from that uh, because it's not helpful to us in our own uh, integrity. I do think, however, that it's necessary for us to recognize that when we have crowds of a hundred thousand people. Um, there's a reason why, uh, in general, uh, situations in society that there are regulations and safety measures that are usually in place in order to be able to accommodate that magnitude of people. Um, and I think that as a collective, we just need to reflect on that. We need to reflect on it in terms of individuals, recognizing, you know, where are we going and what are the circumstances, and that that's part of what we know as a society of civilized. Uh, modern people. Then let me ask about this then, because some people, it's almost a tension, I feel. Some people say we have to learn something from this tragedy. And then the question is, what do we learn from this tragedy? Some people say what we learn is very simple, (laughs) that we have to have better crowd control measures, that we can't violate safety protocols. And other people say that's all true and no one's denying that, or at least in my community, no one's denying that. But we also have to look for a more directly religious message in terms of what we can learn from this and what we have to do moving forward. But what's your feeling about that? Is there something that we can learn from this? We're sorry to have the lesson, but now that the lesson is there, what is that lesson? I resist reducing situations like this to one single lesson. There are many things I think that we can learn from this. We can learn about, you know, what is it that draws 100,000 people to Meron? Uh, 
You know, what is the spiritual, psychological, emotional draw to that? What is it about that phenomenon that is clearly something that affects so many Jewish people? And uh, what is our response to that in general? And what is the environment in which that is that is occurring? And how does that relate to the rest of the Jewish people? It may be it may sound like a broad lesson, but I think to me that's the most intriguing one and the most overarching one. Because this is not something that happened only this this year, right? This is something right. that's been going on for some time. And, you know, unfortunately, the tragedy has drawn all of our attention to it. But I would say that anytime that we have situations like this, there are several lessons that we may learn. And again, it's another it's another survival tactic. We have a tendency to reduce it down to one point. What is the one point that we can learn from this and carry on? Learn I got the message. And go on, right. Uh, no, it's quite complex. And uh, we have to roll up our sleeves and kind of get into that complexity and, and, and think about, well, what, is this, what does this teach us? There's, there's a beautiful uh, halakha, actually, that the Rambam brings in Hilchot Anit, in which, you know, he goes through the series of fasts that when Klal Yisrael is whole and sovereign that they, they have to deal with and go through. And one of the, one of the halachot is that the, that the, the hachamim and the leaders of the, of the generation have to sit and contemplate what is going on here? And that it's not just an off-the-cuff, oh, you know, this is what it means. They actually have to sit and contemplate what is going on here. They have to collectively pool their thoughts to try and get to the bottom of how do we respond. And I do think, I will say this, we have a tendency in general to respond to symptoms rather than problems, the core of problems. And that's something that perhaps we should pause and say, well, okay, am I, am, are we responding to a symptom? Or are we responding to a core cause of the problem? Are we t telling everybody to take their shoes off when they board planes because there was one person who, you know, uh, thought perhaps shoes will be the way to get the explosive in? Uh, or are we getting to the core of, well, why do people want to, you know, do these kinds of things? Or what is it drawing us? Why is it drawing us? And what are we missing? I hear that in a certain way that leads us to the next topic, which is our primary topic today. I want to talk a little bit about something which has come up in a few podcasts that I've released over the past month, what might be called, as Rabbi Blau presented it in one episode, the difference between Ehrlichkeit and Frumkeit. How it seems to me, and it seems to a lot of people, I think, that many places, many institutions within Judaism, within Orthodox Judaism, have begun to perhaps, perhaps unconsciously, but perhaps emphasize what we might call being from the ritual elements of being religious at the expense of Ehrlichkeit, meaning honesty, basic ethics and morals. Do you see this as something which is real or it's not such a problem in your mind? I would say it's a problem. I, I'm not sure that it's a direction in which we're going that wasn't often present in the people. Uh, perhaps there may may have been times where it was more or less so. I, you know, I hear people saying a lot that, you know, we're moving into extremes. It's becoming a, a dumbbell Judaism or, you, you know, dumbbell society where we've got the heavy left and a heavy right, but not, not enough at the center. I'm not sure that there was ever a strong center. Hmm. Um, there could have been, there could have been times in where the center was more, it was tolerated and it was accepted perhaps more. But my sense of center is that given any circumstance, the center will assess the response, will think about what is it that's going on and respond to what the circumstances are 
as opposed to the you know a far left or far, far right approach, whether it be political, social, religious, what have you, more often than not, you will be able to anticipate what a right-wing response will be to any given situation or a left-wing response will be to any given situation. So I also resist uh, saying this is a symptom of our times, you know, that, <laughs> that people are, there's no Erlich Yidin anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that there are an Erlich Yidin anymore, although I do recognize that it is a less, it is, an, it is a, a modifier that is used less often, less often. Right. And obviously um, that, that might be semantics. And that, but... Yeah. And that might be semantics, but I will say that it is a general issue. I mean, we can we can see the Rambam writing about these things. We can see, you know, there's a beautiful, I don't know how many people are aware of this. I think more people are aware of this now because of Machon Ofik. But Machon Ofik printed, I don't know how many years ago it is now, maybe 15, 16 years ago, uh, a version of the Misilat Yesharim. Uh, that's a dialogue version. Uh, which oh, yes, I have it in my bookcase right over here. Yes, beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, and sure. and for all intents and purposes, it's it's identical to the chapter version of the Mesilah Yisharim, but there's one uh, unique difference, and that is that is this is this elaborate introduction, a dialogue between a Hasid and a Hacham. And that, that whole dialogue very much revolves around this type of question. You know, what do we focus on in terms of in terms of the the goal or the value? Uh, system of of Klal Yisrael. There was a Sefer Pardes, which I think was written in the 18th century. There's many, many Sefer Pardes that, that were written, and I forget, I think it was in Ar- Rav Arya Leib. This Sefer Pardes says that, that we lost something uh, so valuable in the fact that we tend to go straight to study Shulchan Aruch rather than study the Rambam, the Mishneh Torah. If we would have had the study of the Mishneh Torah ubiquitous in the same way that the Shulchan Aruch is, we would all be learning Hilchot Yesodei HaTorah and Hilchot Deot as a matter of normal study. Well, you also get to that before you drop out, which most people eventually do. Right, right. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's like, you know, uh, the first 10 dot mebrachot for Daf Yomi is the most Every, Everybody's yeah, exactly. a baki, and, and Everybody's a baki. Those halachot, the hala, first of all, it's a recognition that Hilchot Deot are halachot, and that as much as we are meticulous with Hilchot Shabbat, and Hilchot Kashrut, and, and the like, we must be meticulous with Hilchot Deot. And so many of Hilchot Deot are mitzvot deoraita. Yeah, they're mitzvot from the Torah. Several mitzvot deoraita, um, not the least of which is Vehalachta Bidrachav. So I do feel that even on a halachic basis, I don't think it's necessary to have to parse the midot from the halacha. I'm saying that on a halachic basis, there is a, there is a requirement of every frum yid, to be as careful and serious about about the, those halachot as any other halachot that we study, and I think it's essential that every rav be Israel should should have that. Certainly, every every synagogue rabbi, every pulpit rabbi, every every uh, school in their educational system should have hilchot deot as a part of our basic Jewish scholarship. So yes, I do think that it is something that is missed in our society. And it's something that has to be enhanced and requires chizuk, but it's there and it's halacha itself. And certainly I agree with you. I still feel that there is an element where it's de-emphasized at times. And with your reshut, I'd like to give a quick story that happened to me a while ago. Before we bought our current house, we were living elsewhere in Ramat Shemesh. And Ramat Shemesh then was still Ramat Shemesh, was still a very from area. Here's the quick story. We had an apartment and we had already agreed to buy this house. So we needed to sell our current apartment. 
one person had come around Sukkot time, and then not a single other person came for a couple of months. And it's getting a little nerve-wracking. We need to sell the house. We need a down payment. That same person would originally have come, that couple. They called us up and said they wanted to come back. Mm-hmm. So my wife said, okay, this is it. These are the people who want to buy our house. They came back, and this time they said, okay, we'd like to buy the house, but there's one condition. We need to make sure that you predate the bill of sale just by a few weeks or a month because our Aliyah rights are running out around now. We don't want to play games. Okay. So obviously, as we know, apart from the pure obvious ethical problem of stealing from the government, it's also Star Mukdam. There are many halakhic problems with this. It clearly is an unethical thing. And I asked them, is this ma'akev? Is this the kind of thing that if we do it, Mm. will the sale not go through? And she said, this is a requirement. Wow. So I said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Well, call a I, to you. The art scroll part of the story is that the next day we found a buyer for the same price. So we actually were able, within 24 hours, we found a buyer. But here's the part which, to me, is indicative of the problem. Why did it take them two months between the first time they came and the second time? What had changed? And we asked, and we found out. The first time they came, they felt that our street in Ramape Shemesh Aleph wasn't frum enough. And they asked their rough, am I allowed to move to Nachal Maor? People who know Ramat Shemesh know that's a perfectly from street. And he said, you shouldn't. After they couldn't find an apartment they liked, after two months he goes, okay, I guess Bidyevit or something like that, you're allowed to buy there. Hmm. So in other words, they knew to ask a question about, are you allowed to move to a street in a religious neighborhood or not? Is it religious enough? But asking about Star Mukdam defrauding the government and stealing, that didn't occur to them to ask the question. There is the crux of the problem, and I think that that was not a unique situation. Obviously, that's my personal story. It doesn't happen to me every day, thank God. Mm. But I think that happens more often than we would like it to happen. It's a profoundly disturbing story to hear. I mean, I'm glad that you you, you know you got a buyer and Baruch Hashem that that that, that came out. But it's it, it is, and I do think that it is in it is not an isolated uh, occurrence or situation. So, I go back to the point that yes, it is it isn't central. Meaning hilchot deot as halachot as things that have to permeate our lives is not central, and it's not necessarily something that is focused on in the way that it should be. Again, I think that that's one of the values of um, this Hakadama of the Mesila Isharim. I think it's beautifully done, because remember the Ramchal was a playwright. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that about the Ramchal, but he wrote three morality plays. So he had this wonderful way of kind of teasing out these points. You know, you start the story and you think that, you know, the Chacham is the hero and it ends up being that the Hasid is a hero. And uh, these are essentially the central points that are brought out in the, in the discussion. But, um, it's something that has run for some time in us and that definitely nowadays it's it's becoming something that we that's distressing. It reminds me of something which I've heard from, I hope he doesn't mind my mentioning his name, Rabbi Micha Berger from Passaic. Is, I just know from my Facebook group, he put up that until shuls are as likely to have a seder in laws of business or musar, or as you say, hilchot I'm extrapolating from what he said, as they are to have a daf shir, there's something missing in the way we're running our Judaism. Not that one has to replace the other, but when we only do daf but we don't also have a regular seder in learning how to be an ethical person, there is a pagam, there's an injury, there's something which isn't 100%, 100% right. I, yeah, I hear that. I hear that, and I, I don't disagree with that. There's a compartmentalization that occurs in Torah, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. In order to be able to, uh, you know, to kind of, as you say, accentuate certain things and and less than other things. A related problem, I think, is that sometimes I believe that very often we're pushed towards, let's not call it extremism right now, let's instead call it stringency. 
there seems to be a general move towards stricter and stricter compliance with the law, which on its own is a good thing. Being strict to make sure you do it properly is great. I wasn't sure if I were doing it properly before. Now I am doing it properly. That's fine. But there's something else, which is a type of humra, which when we're not just doing it to be meticulous with the law, but to fulfill every possible shita or to go more extreme, to go more to the right, use your term. Most famously, perhaps, was when Rabbi Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik wrote his well-known article in tradition, probably apart from the Rav's articles, the most well-known article ever in tradition, Rupture and Reconstruction, about what, 25, 30 years ago, when he talked about how we've moved in that direction. He uses several examples, whether it's the size of a kezayit or eating fish on Shabbat. He talks about various examples over there. Do you see this as a problem that we're moving in a direction towards increased strict Judaism without necessarily getting more spiritual Judaism? It's a very troubling problem. Uh, and that is something that I absolutely identify as being so in my own life. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not 80, I'm 45 years old. And in my own lifetime, uh, I have seen a prominent shift towards stringency as being the measuring factor as to one's, you know, strength in Judaism. And it is quite troubling because it's difficult to, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Soloveitchik points out in that, and I wrote, I don't know if you're aware, but I wrote a, uh, a Sephardic response to that. That was oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, to look at it from a Sephardic perspective. But, you know, one of the things that the, the, the clear points that the Soloveitchik makes in his differentiation between uh, mimetic tradition and textually based you know, tradition, it becomes extremely difficult when the way that we did things and the, the approach to our Torah was essentially a Torah Shabal Peh. It was, a, it was an oral, passed down, behavioral, exper experiential um, environment. And, and this, and, you know, everything has kind of moved to, to being what is written and how is it and how what does it say to do as opposed to how how is it that we traditionally read something and i'll tell our listeners that refers specifically and as well not only to before rabbi Nasi, even in the past couple hundred years even as things were written down it remained yeah. a mimetic tradition nonetheless right. things were written down but people really learned by watching what their parents did precisely what their parents did what their community did what their brothers and sisters and cousins and and you know rabbis did for that matter in the, in, in the society so yes uh, but it is um a very concerning trend because what's happening with regards to that is the level of stringency that is expected is alienating the average jew to a point that uh, I don't think, you know, there was such a level of alienation experienced previously in which if this is the base standard for what, what I am required to do as a, as a Jewish person in order to be able to be recognized as orthodox from what have you, whatever just you want to call a person, people are saying, you know, I just can't manage or it's just too, or it's just too much. It manifests on many, many levels. It manifests financially in, in terms of kashrut. It manifests societally in congregations as to what, what standards we insist that every basic synagogue should have. And I will say, you know, I'm speaking to you from London and the UK is also, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different here in the UK in that in general, the Jewish community is quite centralized. And so there is a stronger effect of the level of what the, the, the standards of orthodox life are established by a central body. And it's much more difficult for people to kind of carve their own path and their own way 
than it might be in the United States, where you you have much greater you know numbers first of all and mm -hmm. you know and diversity at least potential diversity right you know in terms of the communities that you can choose to live in you know so um it's more concentrated here to a degree and does that push it further to the right or does that keep it from moving towards the direction no, of strictness it, it tends, it's it's tending towards the right it's definitely tending further i'll give you an example yeah please i want to ask for some examples how I'll does this manifest example. itself uh, liver <laughs> right okay. buying buying liver at a, at a kosher butcher uh, for for generations, certainly for decades, Jewish women were trusted to buy their liver and to know how to kosher it for consumption. And recently, here in London, the Board of Shechita, uh, who, which is the central uh, regulating body of slaughtered meat in London, prohibited butchers from selling raw liver. So you cannot find raw liver in london anymore you have to buy already cooked liver already prepared liver and that to me is is it's sad it's sad to me because it almost says that either we are we have lost ourselves in what in in terms of what it is our parents grandparents used to be trusted and understood you know had to be done it takes away trust from the jewish community and it says we don't we don't believe that you are capable of following basic instructions as to how to kosher, you know, your, your meat. And I will say, I want to say one thing as far as that's concerned. I wasn't taught that way. My, my Rebbe and teacher was Rabbi Vajra Yosef Satsal. And Rabbi Vajra's shita, his, his approach to teaching law, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't have to say the caliber of, right. of uh, you know, halachic expertise that he had, he, he believed that people could be taught, that halacha could be learned by, by even the most basic Jews. And he dedicated his life to teaching halacha. Very rarely did I ever hear him say, if ever, you know, we don't say this to the people because we don't trust them to be able to learn this. The Rav Zatzal believed that people could learn. And that, that, that that's what his job was as a posek and as a rav, was to teach people the halakha and give it over to them and trust that they would be able to, to adhere to it. And I, I'm concerned about the fact that whether this is the case or not, the message that is sent often is, we don't trust you. I definitely hear that, but couldn't I say on the other side, if I want to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. here, especially when it comes to an example like liver and licha salting it, once upon a time, my parents, my grandparents, they all knew how to salt because... That's how you did it. The butcher didn't do it for you. But just in practice, nowadays, people simply don't have to do it because it's generally done for them. It's not so much that we don't trust them as they never learned. And if somebody walks off the street into a butcher shop and has to do malicha, they won't even know how to start. So perhaps isn't the board of Shechita or the board of, of Kashrut simply acknowledging a reality rather than saying we don't trust you. It's not that we don't trust you. We know that people don't know this anymore. Yeah, so I think that there, I think it's a very important point. And I think that there is a difference. And I'm not here, you know, it was an example. I'm not advocating for liver. No, I understand. <laughs> but I don't even like liver. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think <laughs> I think that there is a difference. Melicha is is an elaborate process. You know, it's one of the in in most traditional circles, it's one of the subjects of halacha that a, that a rav needs to learn in order to be able to become a rav. And it's not just like one halacha or a few halachot or a siman echad. It's a, it's a whole ordeal that, right. that one has to know. And yes, it was passed down mimetically and uh, in in it was modeled from mother to daughter and and it was done absolutely but it's a complicated process and as 
domestic lives changed, it became less and less uh, something that that people were were able to do in their homes. We things were done, you know, for them, and and you know, this, the processes that we would normally do at home were no longer done. So that that went along with it. Kosharing liver is not the same kind of thing. It's it's a it's a basic process. It could very very easily be taught and told. So I, I hear that, and I'm sure that the board of Shrita would say that you know that they would essentially say what you were saying. But I'm concerned about the other side of every chumrah. And I'm not saying that chumras are inappropriate. Chas v'sholem. I'm saying that we have to be very careful with chumrot because there's always another side of the coin. It's what Chazal term uh, a chumra that is ateli dekula, that brings us chas v'sholem to other leniencies that shouldn't be. And I've been a rabbi of communities for, for the last 20, over 20 years. And I'm concerned about the messages that the people, that the average Jewish person hears and understands from the establishments of the rabbinic leadership. And part of the responsibility is not just what am I prohibiting in order to be able to keep people away from Isur, from prohibition, but what am I teaching? What is the message that I'm giving that comes along with it, that people interpret about their Judaism in general, which I'm concerned with? I wonder if I can you know, uh, read to you this one line, which I think is so powerful, and I don't want to take it out of context. This is the Rambam. And this is the Rambam, not in the Mishneh Torah, this is the Rambam in a letter that he wrote to the Rosh Yeshiva of Bavel uh, about a question that the Rosh Yeshiva had with regards to a psaka that the Rambam made in the Mishneh Torah about whether you could you could ride, uh, you know, in a boat in a river on Shabbos, on mm-hmm. Shabbat. And the Rambam writes at the end of the letter, as follows, he says, He says, I've already explained to you. That it's fitting to, to permit to all the people everything that is possible to permit to them. Let us not be burdensome on them. An individual, if he wishes to, can choose what he feels is appropriate to be Mahmiran, Kol as he wishes. That to me, you know, to hear that from the from the pen of the Rambam, so mm-hmm. to speak, is a, a principle. The Rambam is writing a principle there that the ideal should be find a way to not be burdensome on the people. And that is a responsibility of a Rav and Posek. And that's how I learned from my Rav Zatzal, from Rav Ovadja. Chacham Ovadja uh, said to me, he says, you know, it says v'chai bahim. You have to live by the words of the Torah. And that means that you have to do your best to be matir for the people so that they can live their lives without, ter- without tremendous restriction. So you don't agree with the idea that if you have to ask, the answer is no. Certainly do not agree to that. Yeah, it's quite the opposite. Right. We have to recognize that, that the best way of learning is to know when to ask. And to know how to ask. You know, in the Ashkenazic tradition, I've, I've heard the Rav Soloveitchik said, I've heard the story from numerous people that when he would paskin like the Aruch HaShulchan, who was known as being more mekel, more lenient than the Mishnabrura, people sometimes would ask, why are you ruling like the Aruch HaShulchan and not like the Mishnabrura? And the answer I've heard that he would give, he would say, the Mishnabrura was a tzaddik. And tzaddikim are machmirim, they're stringent. The Aruch HaShulchan was a rav. And a rav is a mekel. He's lenient. He tries to find a way to make it easier for people. And therefore, he thought that was actually halacha lamase. That's at least the story, apocryphal though it may be, that I've heard in his name. 
it, it resonates because my, like I said, you know, I mean, you hear those words of the Rambam, my, my Rav Zatzal definitely said that more than once. I think that what you mentioned before about the Chumra Da'ati de Kula, astringency that leads to a leniency, actually relates back in some ways to the first topic we were talking about in terms of ethics. I remember back in Yeshiva, someone found a book that was called, I think, Sheilat Shalom Kilchata, saying hello according to the halacha. Okay, you know, there's a proliferation of uh, Sifrei Halacha, and that was an example of one. And the question was raised in that book, is one allowed to say hello to a woman, which is forbidden in certain sources like the Shulchan Aruch? And he said that, you know, even though people are lenient because of Kavod HaBriot, people because of the, the uh, of being nice to people and because of the honor and re- giving people basic respect, it says, Ra'u'i l'hachmir. It is appropriate to be machmir, to be stringent in that case. And I remember my Chavruta and I were laughing that what a great example of a, of a chumrah d'atili de kula. You're being machmir on saying hello, and you're being extraordinarily makil, lenient, on kavod or having simple respect for other people. And I think too often these chumrot are more in the realm of ritual. I think it's less common to find the need for a chumrah when it comes to simple business ethics. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think the tendency is probably less acute than it is in the ritual realm. Do you think that's true? It can be, perhaps, Yes. I think that it probably tends to be that way because the, these are the majority of the questions that people ask. Very The, the thing that I, I, I'd like to see more of are questions around business ethics mm-hmm. and business law. Yeah. And uh, that goes hand in hand. You know, it's, there is an important part of, of learning that uh, teaches us good questions to ask. Yeah, we can't assume that just because we think we know how to ask questions. Questions are part of education as well. And that's part of a Rob's responsibility or a teacher's responsibilities to teach so that the student knows how to ask. Before you mentioned that the emphasis on stringency can scare people away. So I want to talk just for a moment about people who are not part of the Orthodox community or perhaps perhaps they're part of the community, but they're not identified as Orthodox Jews by their own or somebody else's definition. Mm-hmm. How can we welcome non-Orthodox Jews into our communities without compromising on what we believe is the way God wants us to act? How are we able to say we welcome you in without pretending that something which we think is incorrect and inappropriate is not so? I'll say that, uh, speaking again as, as the a senior rabbi for the Sephardic community here in the UK and as a Sephardic Jew, you'll know that we've never had denominations Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, mm-hmm. Religious. One of the beautiful, in my mind, hallmarks of the Sephardic of Sephardic Jews is that we accept everyone. There are standards as to when you are going to engage in Jewish ritual law and so on. There's a recognition of their standards. So whether the person is individually observant or not, they know that when they want to get married or they want to have a bar mitzvah, they're going to do it in terms of kadat v'chadin v'kalacha. Those are the standards we hold, and they accept that. And the interesting thing is they identify as orthodox, even though they may not practice or be observant, but their uh, you know category of Judaism right. is orthodox. And one of the reasons we, certainly in our community, are able to do that is because we look at the person first and we are we receive them with honor and kindness and we recognize that the first thing is is that they they're jews and that it's our responsibility to care and love and to welcome them and if we can it's our responsibility to show them their place in torah like it says in the mishnah that's and my experience is 
that when that is done, when the person is valued, when the person is recognized as a valued member of the community, as a member of Klal Israel, there is a respect that that person has when you say to them, this is our system, these are our standards, and for the most part it has been practiced for the better part of 2,000 years. When they are seen, when they are welcomed, when they are valued and respected, they in turn have respect for what you come and represent and teach. And that goes back, I suppose, to the points that you were making in the, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, Hilchot Deot. Hilchot Deot allows us, prompts us, teaches us to see uh, the individuals, B'Tselem Elohim, and that, that's part of of walking in his ways. So there's a, perhaps a, a bit of, of, you know, chizuk, there's strengthening that's required in terms of being able to say the law doesn't have to be compromised but the person, whether they are following the law to its ultimate or not, must always be recognized and respected. And I will say that for the most part, we can criticize a person's observance, a group's observance, all we want. But I, I, I would like to remind everyone that we have been in exile for over 2,000 years, and it has not been easy. And our people have been through the fires of the world with their hands tied behind their backs. Lovely, wonderful, Baruch Hashem, that there are, there are Jews who are adhering you know, to every mitzvah that they can to the ultimate expression. But our people, the very fact that we are here and standing and that we are, are prominent and thriving in whatever way that we, we, we are and can be is in, uh, in and of itself, in my mind, the greatest miracle that our people has ever seen. And so the Jews that are still here the Sherit Israel, I call them. Every single one of them is precious and must be cherished. And uh, that's not to require, you know, people think that when that's said, we have to compromise everything and lower the bar. It does not need to be lowered. We can keep the bar and the standards of halacha and, you know, what it is that is appropriate, kadat v'chadin, and still focus appropriately on each individual and recognize how precious they are. That brings it to, to, to high standards. How about the way that relates to people outside the Jewish community altogether? Obviously, we treat them with respect. How much do you think they should be integrated into what we're doing to invite when them in? When you say to people see... outside the Jewish community, you mean... People who are not Jewish. People who are not Jewish at all. I, I yeah. mean non-Jews altogether. I don't mean people who aren't involved. I mean people who aren't Jewish. Do you think that we should engage in dialogue with them? And I mean, I don't mean we should ignore them, but should we invite them into our shuls or should we set a barrier and say, no, 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 this is for Jews and we respect you and you're outside, but this really is a family gathering, so to speak? It's a broad question. It all depends on what our purposes are and what our aims are. I mean, we're not a proselytizing people, yeah, for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we're trying to get people to come in and, and be Jewish. That's certainly not the case. In terms of dialogue, interaction, interface, again, I'll speak as a Sephardic Jew. Uh, we always have done that. The Sephardic Jews have always been integrated in society, have not seen an ideal in isolating from the societies in which we lived. We recognize, to the, to the, to the contrary, we recognize Galut as a, a time in which there are things that we have to learn from the various nations in which we find ourselves. And the reality is, I said this recently, because they've done the Board of Deputies of uh, British Jews, which is essentially the core body that represents the Jewish people to the government here in the country, did a study recently on uh, inclusivity in the Jewish community. 
you know, how it is that, that the Jewish population accepts their black Jews, Yemeni Jews, Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi. And I said that we have to remember that the Jewish people, for all intents and purposes, are a repository of the cultures and nations of the world. I mean, there's not a place that we haven't lived in. There's not a language right. we haven't spoken. And um, we, all, we hold all of that. And so there's, that's a beautiful part of us. But that's because we've been able to interact with the various peoples on earth. So we've certainly, the Sephardic Jews have, have definitely held that as an ideal and as a value. And we've learned a great deal and we teach a great deal. So it's, it's, it's important. Okay, well, Rabbi Duak, I think after today's conversation, you may be getting some calls from people who want to become Sephardim. It certainly <laughs> made it sound like a very appealing way of being Jewish, and I really appreciate it. The insights which you provide today are very important because, as I said to you before, this is something which I've been dealing with a lot and which I think has resonated with a lot of my listeners as well, that not, I'm not going to say that things are not going appropriately, but I think there are a lot of things in the Orthodox world, the broadly Orthodox world, which need maybe a course correction. And what you're saying today certainly helps us uh, indicate some of those ideas. So thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. It's an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com.